So this Sunday is an anniversary of sorts. A year ago this week, all of us absorbed very quickly that life as we knew it was about to change. Tom Hanks and his wife were diagnosed with COVID. The NBA began to cancel games. The WHO declared a global pandemic. A year ago, I started the week having a series of conversations with our Haven leaders. How do we make our gatherings more safe? So we ordered these individual communion cups and wafers. Surely those would be safer than our shared bread and cup on a Sunday. We bought individually wrapped granola bars and other snacks thinking those might be safer for a season than our shared bagel station. We stocked up on lots of hand sanitizer. We planned to place the chairs the following Sunday just a bit further apart. But as the week went on, hour after hour brought new information and deeper understanding of what was actually needed. Yasha Munk wrote an article in the Atlantic titled, Cancel Everything. And within a few days, the consensus quickly became clear that that was indeed what was needed. Offices told their employees to start working from home. Schools abruptly announced an immediate move to distance learning. The school district we rented space from on Sundays abruptly canceled all of their rental agreements. And our Haven leadership immediately shifted direction, planning an immediate move to Zoom. I wrote to the community on March 14, 2020. I don't know when it will be safe for us to gather again at Washington Elementary, but to be real, it could be a while. So as it turns out, that was a bit of an understatement. <laughs> Honestly, I had no idea a while would mean more than a year. I had no idea. We'd still be doing virtual only services, not only for Easter 2020, <laughs> but also for Easter 2021. I had no idea what was coming, that we'd see some of our most familiar Haven faces need to pull back from this shared Haven space, naming that Zoom church just can't bring the life that they need right now, which I totally get. I had no idea how so many of us would struggle with our mental health in various ways in the weeks and months to come. I had no idea what it would feel like to console my kids months into lockdown without any idea when they could play on a playground again with a friend or actually meet their classroom teacher in person. I had no idea how many lives would soon be lost across our country, throughout our globe. I had no idea the ways this virus would play into and deepen our social and political divides, heightening our inequities, further inflaming racial tensions. I had no idea we'd bear witness to the hopeful rise and all too predictable fall of white support for Black Lives Matter, or that we'd see a persistent and abhorrent rise throughout this year in violence directed at Asian American and Pacific Islander bodies in cities throughout our country. I had no idea things were about to get so hard. Maybe it was for the best for all of us, but truthfully, none of us had any idea what was really coming. Of course, as I speak this, 
it is also true that today, despite the fact that this whole year has felt like so much, so many of us are grieving losses in different ways, we also stand in a place that feels cautiously hopeful. Vaccine rollout has been continuing to move along. I think at least a quarter of our Haven folks have received at least one vaccine. The CDC is now saying fully vaccinated people can gather without any of the other virus mitigation strategies we've become so accustomed to. In a few weeks, my two elementary age kids will return to in-person learning. A return to in-person Haven services feels like it may be coming in the not impossibly distant future. Perhaps we can begin to see the contours of moving from a season of loss to a season of healing and renewal, but we're not quite there yet. We're still in the longing. We're still in the waiting. We're still in so much uncertainty. We've yet to really return from the exile. And even once we begin to emerge and reconnect in person, I think we're gonna have a season of assessing the damage. The storm has to pass before you can really account for all that it has wrought. There will be a time of beginning to come together, beginning to absorb all that's happened while we've been distanced from one another. This is a limbo season where we're still looking to be sustained in the midst of this challenging leg of our collective journey, just as we're gonna to need to be sustained through whatever comes next. As I think you all know at this point, we're several weeks into a series of conversations we've called the stories that sustain us. And in this series, we've been looking to the gospels, the stories in the New Testament from the life of Jesus and considering what they might bring us that can be nourishing and sustaining to us throughout this whole COVID journey. And truthfully, I had an idea for a story I intended to look at today, but as I spent time preparing this week, I found myself instead returning to a story I preached on actually a couple of years ago. I found myself considering another season in which I was navigating my own delicate limbo between loss and hope, walking that fragile, sensitive space as I accompanied two of the women I'm closest to in the world through diagnoses and treatment of serious cancers. Now, I'm happy to say that a week ago, my sister Mandy turned 40. Um, when she was diagnosed, though, with stage four metastatic breast cancer at age 38, just about 18 months ago, it was not clear we'd ever celebrate that milestone of another decade of life. In that limbo season I was in, there was a story from the life of Jesus that spoke to me. And as we mark this strange anniversary this week and navigate our own kind of limbo, our own space between loss and hope with all the uncertainty of what's to come. I wondered if this story and some of the teaching I shared around it might not be helpful to revisit. So if you were here a couple of years ago, some of what I shared this morning might feel a bit familiar. But today we're gonna look at a story 
about Jesus's response in one of those kind of limbo moments. It's the story of what happens after the death of Jesus's good friend, Lazarus. Okay, first a little background. The Lazarus story is a unique one that we find only in the Gospel of John, like a lot of John stories. You likely know the basic premise. By many accounts, Jesus's most spectacular miracle is that he raises Lazarus from the dead. If you've heard the name Lazarus at all, you probably know where the story I'm talking about is going. And lest we think performing a resurrection is just something Jesus like did in the spur of the moment as the spirit moved, the way John seemed to tell the story, Jesus knows as Lazarus is dying, he has some sense that he's going to raise him from the dead. And that's like days before he does it. So there's the setup that foreshadows the end of the story. And just to put it in context, this is like two chapters later from the story we looked at with Ginny last week, okay? So we've had the healing um, of the man born blind, the testimony around that, the, the kind of conflict and controversy around it. And just a bit later, we hear this story. And so there's this setup. Jesus indicates a huge miracle is gonna happen in the setup. And then at the end of the chapter of John 11, we have the miracle itself, which many believe is like the climax of John's whole argument that Jesus is indeed God in the flesh. The way John tells the story, this like huge Lazarus miracle, that is like the straw that breaks the camel's back. It's, it's the one that catalyzes his enemies. For John, Lazarus' Lazarus's resurrection is like the match that lights the fuse leading all the way to Jesus's unjust death. But today I'm not so interested in those parts of the story, neither the setup, nor the miraculous conclusion, nor even the consequence of the miracle. Don't get me wrong, those all matter, but the miracle of resurrection is not the only story that's told in John 11. While many are fascinated in this story by the parts that reveal this unique God nature of Jesus, the one who can raise the dead, today I'm interested in the parts that reveal his vulnerable human side and what that might mean to us in these vulnerable limbo kind of spaces. Because that to me is good news too. So let's read that part of the story when Jesus arrives in the city of Bethany, where Lazarus lived. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had been in the tomb four days already. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, so many of the Jewish people of the, of the region had come to Martha and Mary to console them over the loss of their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary was sitting in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will grant you. Jesus replied, your brother will come back to life again. Martha said, I know that he will come back to life again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even if he dies, and the one who lives and believes in me will never die. 
do you believe this? She replied, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who comes into the world. And when she had said this, Martha went and called her sister Mary, saying privately, the teacher is here and is asking for you. So when Mary heard this, she got up and quickly went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still in the place where Martha had come out to meet him. And then the people who were with Mary in the house, consoling her, saw, consoling her got up quickly and go, saw her get up and quickly and go out. And they followed her because they thought she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the people who had come with her weeping, he was intensely moved in spirit and greatly distressed. He asked, where have you laid him? They replied, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Thus, the people who had come to mourn said, oh, look how much he loved him. But some of them said, this is the man who caused the blind man to see. Couldn't he have done something to keep Lazarus from dying? Jesus, intensely moved again, came to the tomb. We'll stop the reading there. So between the setup and the miracle, this is the story we have. Jesus encountering two grieving women in the wake of losing their brother, someone Jesus cared about deeply. From elsewhere in the gospels, as well as in this story, we get a sense of how close Jesus was both to Lazarus and his sisters. You might remember the story of Jesus dining in their home where Martha, the busy hostess, admonished her sister for sitting at the rabbi's feet, pondering his teaching rather than serving him dinner. And Jesus is more than just like a spiritual leader who floats in with some you know, words of encouragement, detached. Yes, he is their rabbi, but he is more. He is a close friend. He is a loved one. He's one of their people. Earlier in the story, the sisters reach out to him with the words, Lord, the one you love is sick. But Jesus didn't rush there. He waited. And now that he's finally arrived at this intimate place of grief, each has a response for him that names the depth of their pain. Martha said it first, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Mary shares the same lament when she finds him. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. The others who've come to grieve with and comfort the sisters, they have their own version. Couldn't he have done something to keep Lazarus from dying? These are the statements of the forsaken. The questions of the hopeless. They come from the place we go when we're so heartbroken, 
We're so bewildered by life's turn of events that we have to grasp at some way to understand some cause that could have changed our circumstances, some person to blame that which feels so beyond our control. If we hadn't had so much financial stress, our marriage could have survived. If only I'd gone to the doctor sooner, this pregnancy might have made it. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus arrives to a persistent question that everyone seems to be asking, why didn't he come sooner? Why didn't he stop this from happening? Where was he? Now let's just name, no matter who you are, that's a difficult spot to walk into. I have to admit, I am not as mature as Jesus. And I'm an Enneagram three, which in part means like I care a lot about people thinking I'm like perceiving that I am doing things well. So if I sense people are blaming me for something going wrong, particularly something high stakes and emotional, I can get defensive. But Jesus does not respond with defensiveness. He doesn't deflect their hurt. He doesn't try to justify his behavior. He responds not with any self-protection at all, but with genuine love in the midst of their pain. So what does that look like? This brings me to the first kind of important thing I want to notice from this story. Jesus does not prescribe a process for the women's pain. He doesn't prescribe a process for the women's pain. Rather, he responds to each person's grief in a unique way following their lead. Martha and Mary both start with the same statement. The Lord, if you had been here, cry, but they take it in different directions, right? Jesus follows the lead of the person he's with. Martha wants to have a conversation about hope. Jesus meets her there. For her, she follows the, if you had been here, my brother would not have died with, but even now, I know, whatever you ask from God, God will grant you. Now, I don't think she's saying that because she's expecting him to raise her brother from the dead. It seems pretty clear in the story later that she assumed that that was not possible. No, I think she's naming, she is heartbroken that her brother has died. But that fact does not undo what she, her sister, her brother have all come to be passionate about, participating in the in-breaking of God's benevolent way that Jesus seems to be bringing. Even if she grieves that Jesus couldn't or wouldn't stop this scenario from playing out the way it did, it has not shaken her conviction that he is the sent one, the one who moves with the authority of the divine. She still believes Jesus is connected to something beyond, and that is a source of hope. Even in the face of grief, she needs that. She's reaching out to Jesus, pleading for assurance that her hope is not misplaced. And Jesus meets her 
He encourages her with his own hopeful words rooted in faith. Your brother will come back to life again. Martha assumes he's talking about a life beyond in the future. But Jesus seems to correct her. He calls her to trust that in his very self right now is life that can endure. Resurrection that somehow breaks through even death. Life in the midst of loss that is available to all who put their trust in him. He uses a word in speaking to her. A word in Greek said something like pistio. It's often translated believe, which makes us think of a cerebral process. When we talk about belief, I think as post-enlightenment Westerners, we think this is a mental ascent a cerebral process, but the word is actually more akin to trust, to actively trust, to entrust oneself to. Jesus is meeting Martha's questions with assurance that she can trust him and that that trust has meaning. I am the resurrection and the life, he says. The one who trusts in me will live. Even if he dies and the one who lives and trusts in me will never die. Do you trust this? Can you trust me? Yes, Martha responds. And then she gives this pure declaration of faith in who Jesus is, even in the wake of disappointment, even in the midst of grief. I trust you are the Christ, the son of God who comes into the world, even when all is lost, even when nothing makes sense, even when I'm so disappointed. I trust you are God's anointed. You are Messiah. In the wake of loss, in the unresolved questions, in the bewilderment of heartbreak, Martha is looking for hope beyond her present circumstances. Jesus is there to gently meet her in that place. But as we've seen in other stories, Martha and Mary, they're not the same. Mary does not eagerly rush out to meet Jesus. She is not coming to him seeking spiritual solace. She is deep in her feelings. When her sister tells her the rabbi waits for her, she approaches and falls in a pool of tears at his feet. It's interesting. We often see Mary at Jesus's feet, learning Torah. Soon she'll be anointing those same feet with perfume, rubbing them with her hair. Here, she wails at his feet. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, period. No but. There's no declaration of faith that follows that statement for Mary. Only disappointment and heartbreak. Mary is in the place of raw desolation. Jesus doesn't try to talk her out of that. Miriam Greenspan is a psychotherapist, 
an author of a book called Healing Through the Dark Emotions. In it, she shares part of her story, how 10 years into her vocation, she lost her first child, a baby boy named Aaron, who died two months after he'd been born. His whole life had been lived in the hospital. Dr. Greenspan was overwhelmed with unbearable grief, understandably. But she also noticed how uncomfortable others felt around her grief when it stretched from weeks to months. According to the DSM-4, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual 4, which is sometimes called the Psychiatrist's Bible, patients grieving the death of a loved one are permitted two months to exhibit symptoms like sadness, insomnia, and loss of appetite. And if their grief persists beyond that, they may be diagnosed with depression and treated with prescription medication. As Greenspan writes, grief, perhaps the most inevitable of all human emotions, given the unalterable fact of mortality, is seen as an illness if it goes on too long. How many of us have felt this tension between our own feelings and what others expect us to feel? How many of us have seen this at play this year as we've all navigated this like similar set of circumstances, but in very different ways? Our pain points have been different. What we have needed in our places of loss have been different at times. And in this story, Jesus seems to validate those differences. When Jesus encounters Mary at the tomb, he does not prescribe her medication. He does not preach a sermon she's not looking for right now because Jesus doesn't prescribe a process for our pain. He lets his, her words of heartbreak and betrayal just stand without dispute. But Jesus does more than stand as witness to Mary's pain. He does something else that's also important. Jesus allows himself to feel Mary's pain. He enters into the helplessness of human vulnerability. He enters into that oh, limbo helplessness of human vulnerability. You can take the screen down. Thank you. Jesus knows what's coming. He knows this moment of loss is not the last moment. He knows there's something around the corner, in this case, like very close around the corner, but that does not stop him from inhabiting this moment of pure grief fully. In the wake of Mary's emotional display, Jesus himself shows two strong emotions, emotions that are unique for Jesus. First, there is a kind of indignant anger. The word in Greek is enebrimisato, something like that. We see it twice in this little passage, in verse 33 and verse 38. Our translation says he was intensely moved, but that doesn't really give the full thrust of what this emotion is, okay? The word generally refers to outrage, to anger, 
literally to a, an anger that makes you like snort with fury. Okay, can you imagine that? Oh, that snort of anger. It is a strong, strong feeling. It is visceral. Jesus feels that when he encounters Mary. He feels that at the end of our passage. And then when he approaches the tomb itself and he sees the evidence of death with his own eyes, he weeps. He joins those who have been shedding tears for days. He joins Mary who is wailing at his feet. He's overcome with grief and he weeps. I've read a number of scholars who say, this can't be about Jesus feeling sad or mad about Lazarus's death. He knows he's about to raise him. He must just be like, some of them will say things like he's, he's mad at the devil for the, the power of the devil. He's mad, he's sad that the devil seems to have won. Personally, I can't help but wonder if this is simply the musing of straight cis white male theologians who perhaps do not understand in a deep way the value in emotional experience. Perhaps they don't see the value or truly understand the power of entering into another's emotional landscape a feeling with them. Perhaps they don't quite appreciate how transformative that is for our hearts, how meaningful it is to receive. Wes Moore is an author, a Black activist. I heard him interviewed a couple of years ago in a podcast where he described the difference between sympathetic love an empathetic love in a way that I found so helpful. And it illuminates what I think Jesus is about here. So this is what Wes Moore has to say that I think is super helpful. Sympathetic love, he said, is a love where you're basically saying, well, I'm doing this because I feel bad for you. An empathetic love is I do this because your pain is also mine. I do this because your pain is also mine. This empathetic love is not an easy love. It's a costly love. It's costlier than sympathetic love. Empathetic love is a love that hurts, but that choice to hurt with has power. This is the choice I think Jesus is making at the tomb. Jesus is led by Mary into the desolation of human vulnerability, into the tragedy of it, into the grief without consolation, and he is willing to sit in the dark with her. He allows himself to feel the dark of desolation. He weeps. He snorts with anger at the injustice of it all. He encounters the loss he loves with real empathy. I was on a personal retreat, spending two days and a night at a Catholic retreat center in the South Bay with Janie Prince. The day I got the confirmation call from my sister that her biopsies had all come back positive for malignant breast cancer. I had no way of knowing when we booked the trip weeks in advance, what that day would end up being. 
But the fortuitous timing of the trip felt like a gift of grace because I was in a space and time set apart for contemplation, prayer, connection with the divine alongside a dear friend who was open to bearing witness and holding space with me for whatever the time needed to be. In that space, I could not skip forward to celebrating my sister's 40th birthday. I was in the shock. I was in the fear, I was in the terror, in the grief of being reminded in a personal painful way, how little control over my life or the lives of those I love, I really have. In moments like those, I find more comfort in a God that weeps, in a God that snorts with us at the heaviness of it all, in a God who is broken open, than a God who is invulnerable, above and beyond it all. And so, yes, I long for resurrection. I long for the miracle. I am actively trying to live a life trusting in the one who calls himself resurrection and life. But in the moments before that resurrection, in the moments when the world is closing in and it's hard to see beyond this here and now to some brighter day on the horizon, I need to know that God's heart heaves with mine. I need to weep and not be rushed. I need the empathy of a God who's able to be vulnerable with me. I believe all of us need that kind of empathetic love. And if we're to be the embodiment of God's inbreaking in the world, as Jesus was, if we are to be anointed by the same spirit that was in him and commissioned to be the body of Christ here today, then all of us are called to come forward for one another with that same willingness to be vulnerable together. All of us are invited to be present to each other the way Ginny was present to me at that sacred retreat, showing the empathetic love of God as we wept. This is a call for all of us as we journey through this limbo together, as we just rediscover each other after more than a year of separation. Can we care for each other the same way Jesus, is care Jesus cared for those sisters? Can we bear witness? to one another's stories of loss this year? Can we receive one another's care? At the end of our passage, you see the second snort of anger from Jesus. It's the last verse I shared. He snorts as he walks towards the tomb. If we kept reading, at that point we'd see him perform the amazing miracle. It's a great story. I encourage you to read it later. But today I just want to end our study of this passage by pointing out that it's Jesus's snorting anger, it's him entering into the emotion of the moment that compels the action in the story. He doesn't come in as this sympathetic savior and just slap a happy ending on it. His miraculous action is catalyzed by his empathetic love. Jesus's heart heaves with us, and that has the power to bring deliverance. God's vulnerable empathy changes things. God's vulnerable empathy changes things. May we too be moved in the same way. And may that movement bring us from feeling to acting, and in so doing, May we all participate in building the new life after loss I think we all long for. Amen.
Amen, friends. Whew, all right. We're going to move quickly into our time of conversation. Let me just share some questions and we'll go ahead and break into breakout rooms. I think for today, it'll be a little shorter, about 12 minutes, so we can make sure we have time for our other things. Does that sound all right, Jeannie? Okay, so here are their questions. Think of some of the emotions you felt over the last year. If Jesus was feeling with you this year, what do you think he'd feel? Or where do you feel challenged to move from sympathy to greater empathy in relationships in your life? Who are you open to receiving empathetic care from? So before we do that real quick, I'm just gonna invite us to take a breath, to give us a moment to tap into what those feelings are we've been feeling this year. To say, God, will you be present in all the emotions that come up? Will you give us wisdom and courage to invite one another in where we know we could receive care, we could use care? Would you give us wisdom and courage to bring care to one another? Amen.